We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. What are your earliest memories of church? For some of us, there was a sense of mystery and awe looking around at stations of the cross or statues of saints. There were smells of incense, especially on high Sundays. There was the priests acting out the mass and your trips to the rail to receive it. For others of us, there were organs and choirs, neighbors in suits and hats singing hymns. Pastors urging us to be saved and hard pews that made noise when you adjusted your seating position. And then for some of us, our earliest memories are guitars and drums and pastors wearing headsets and occasional video interludes and compelling stories. However, <clears throat> increasingly, American children are growing up with memory banks that are empty of the church. They have no memories at all. According to numerous surveys, the fastest growing religious affiliation in America is none. Our latest recruits to hit the beaches of parenting, the millennials, they're ignoring church in record numbers. Now, I know that's not most of you. You wouldn't be watching this if that was your story. But that overall story in our culture, it affects all of us more than we like to admit. You know, as I was thinking about all this this week, I remembered something Philip Yancey said in his little book, Church, Why Bother? That's an appropriate title for our times, don't you think? Yancey began the book by reflecting on his own religious upbringing. It was, according to Yancey, Deep South Fundamentalism. He said this, listen, it was a controlled environment, a subculture. I now recognize that a harsh church full of condemnation and empty of humility and any sense of mystery stunted my faith for many years. And then he summarized, in short, Christianity kept me from Christ. I mean, that's quite an indictment. If Yancey's description is anywhere near to describing our church, then little wonder that more and more people are choosing none. 
The great Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor once said that one of her in-laws started attending church because, quote, the service was so horrible he knew there must be something else to make people come. Well, it, it seems that some of them have come and have found that there's not really something else there. That's why it's so startling to read the Nicene Creed, the most fundamental and most basic statement of what we believe, and find a stanza about the church. I mean, the creed proclaims our belief in God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit. We get that. But then it turns to our belief in the church. So let's say the end of the creed together. And today we're going to focus on just the first sentence of the last stanza. Let's say this together. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. All right, this is our sixth and next to last week in a series we're calling Navigating Faith, What We Believe and Why It Matters. We've said since week two in this series that the Nicene Creed has been a standard declaration of faith for Christians for 17 centuries. It's a simple, straightforward summary of orthodox belief. In fact, it outlines the very foundations of our faith. It's not the whole story, but it's the plot summary. We've also said that we don't build our faith on the Nicene Creed. We build our faith on the Bible. But the Creed does provide a helpful blueprint for that faith. And the particular part of the blueprint, blueprint that we're looking at today is fascinating. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So there are four descriptors there that should guide our thinking about the church and our practice. They should guide what we do together as we try to be the church. The first descriptor is one. Now, obviously, this speaks to our unity with one another. I think we need to listen to one of Jesus's prayers. Let's get this. John 17 records for us Jesus's prayer on the last night of his life. I mean, it's really a remarkable privilege for us to hear his heart at a time when his entire thinking would have been laser focused on what is of utmost importance. This was the last night of his life, and he knew it. And here's what he prayed. Begins in, at the beginning of chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then, a few verses later, Jesus begins, Jesus begins to get specific. He, he starts by praying for his disciples in verse 6. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. This prayer for the disciples goes on for quite a while. Then he turns his attention to us. And I want us to pay careful attention to what Jesus prays. So once again, last night of his life, he's no doubt highly concentrated and he prays for us and we have that prayer. So what does he pray for? For our faith, for our protection, for our blessing, all good things. But those are not the things he prays for. Let's hear his heart. My prayer is not for them alone meaning not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, 
just as you are in me and I am in you. May they, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Wow. And then he adds one more final request for us. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. Can you see how in Jesus' mind, it's all about relationship? He wants us to be in unity, perhaps above all else, because nothing other than God's Spirit working in us to make each of us more like Jesus, nothing else could accomplish such unity. So we live out this unity, and the world comes to understand that that something is remarkable about God. God's doing something here. That's the idea. And then his closing request is that we would be with him to see him as he really is. It's all about relationship. We believe in a church that is one. We believe in a unified church. Here's the translation. The church is a network of relationships. And we each are a part of that network. St. John of the Cross was right when he observed that The virtuous soul that is alone is like the burning coal that is alone. It will grow colder rather than hotter. I want to add a word that's critically important to us here at Gateway. Community. That's what the church is. It's a community of people. People who believe the stuff that we've been talking about and people who are organizing their lives around that belief. We cannot allow ourselves to define the church by its externals. That limits the church's influence on us and our participation in it. Again, that limits the church's influence on us and our participation in it. For example, sometimes we define the church by its location. Hey, let's meet at church. And when we say that, we mean let's meet at 42350 Tall Cedars Parkway. Or some of us define the church by the pastor. God help us. I once heard the story of a little boy who went to church that had a crucifix at the front of its sanctuary. And one Sunday after church, he told his mom, Hey, mom. When we go to church, I can't ever see Jesus. Well, why not, his mom wondered. He said, because Father Bruce is in the way. We cannot define the church by its externals, things like location or leadership. And we can't define the church by its function either, things like children's ministry or worship service or educational offerings. If we define the church this way, it will limit its influence on us and our participation in it. Those things are certainly a part of our connection to a church, but at its core, the church is a network of relationships. When I hear that someone who goes to Gateway has just had surgery and I take them a meal, that's the church serving the church. When someone from Gateway calls me just to encourage me and find out how Diane and I are doing, that's the church encouraging the church. That's a church meeting. The church is one. Philip Yancey offered this summary statement later in his little book. He said, Christianity is not a purely intellectual, internal faith. It can only be lived in community. Perhaps for this reason, I have never entirely given up on church. At a deep level, I sense that church contains something I desperately need. Whenever I've been in church for a time, I find that I'm the one who suffers. My faith fades, and the crusty shell of lovelessness grows over me again. I grow colder rather than hotter, and so my journeys away from church have always circled back inside. Church is one.
We believe the church is one and the church is holy. Now, holiness is the second descriptor in the creed. And in that, the apostle Peter agrees and puts it like this. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, first of all, did you notice all of the corporate images in those verses? People, priesthood, nation. Church is a we thing, not a me thing. Beyond that, Peter wants us to recognize how different we are. That's his point. Chosen people, we're picked out ones. Royal priesthood, we're children of the king and holy nation. In fact, verse 11 of the same passage, he says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, the word holy means set apart, different, unique. It also means morally pure and undiluted. The church is different. It's set apart and it's pure. This means a couple of things. First of all, that our behavior is remarkable. We act remarkably. That's why Peter tells us in that same passage, not just to abstain from sin, but he goes on in the next verse, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our behavior is different. It's noteworthy among our neighbors. Rodney Clapp wrote a book about the church that has my favorite title. It's called A Peculiar People. My mother used to say that Dick Littlejohn was peculiar. Uh, Dick Littlejohn went to the church that I grew up in when I was a, a young boy and a teenager. He, he dressed in disheveled 20-year-old suits, and he drove a functional, at best, 30-year-old car. Mr. Littlejohn also owned a chain of grocery stores that operated in northern South Carolina, western North Carolina, and northeastern Georgia. He could afford a new suit. Instead, he helped send me to college. I figured I was just that remarkable until I learned that he did that for many other young men from single parent or disadvantaged homes. I don't know how many actually. I just know there were several others. He also sponsored an orphanage in Egypt. And I can't really list Dick Littlejohn's charitable efforts. They're extensive and I was never privy to that whole list. I just know Mr. Littlejohn was peculiar and he had a peculiar and remarkable influence on a great many people. He invested in more than a healthy savings account. He invested in good deeds. His life left a mark. The church is like that. It's holy. It's peculiar. Its behavior is unexpected and remarkable. And it has an impact for good. It leaves a legacy. You know, I think of the impact of Mr. Littlejohn's life. Well, I suspect God is just waiting for a whole group of people who will live their lives all out like that. Think of the impact. Don't you want to be part of that? And that's his design for the church. First of all, our behavior is remarkable. The second thing that Holy suggests is that the business of the church is the worship of God. That's one of the points Peter makes. Remember how he put it? He says, you are a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The church doesn't exist primarily to facilitate friendships or interpersonal support. The church doesn't primarily exist to entertain or to help us build a, a healthy sense of ourself. As a side benefit, those things often happen when we're connected to the church, but that's not why the church exists. The church exists primarily as a collecting point for the worship of God. From the very beginning of our story, of the Jesus story, we've gathered to rehearse these things about Him, these stories about Him. Hey, you remember that time He fed all those people? Thousands. Yeah, and, and you were clueless. You were, you were dumbfounded when it was over. Me, you weren't any better. Yeah, and remember the time that that, that blind guy kept yelling at us and, and you were trying to push him away and Jesus went over and healed him, just gave him his sight. What, what was His name? Oh, I think it was Bartimaeus. That's right. And the whole crowd around us just went nuts. So how are you doing? Well, here's the thing. I've had this terrible pain and, and I remember that my father had the same kind of thing just a few months before he died. I, I'm really worried about it. Hey, hey, just think of what he told us about that kind of thing, right? He told us that he would be with us and, and we know what that means. We saw it from the very beginning. That's what we've done. We've gathered to rehearse those stories and to remind one another what was important and to praise our God with all of our hearts, minds, and wills. That's the business of the church. You know, it occurs to me that there's a warning in that for us. For those of you who are deeply involved in the church, you may know that the church, in America at least, has been increasingly influenced by business over the last few decades. The result is that we as the church, we try to do strategic planning effectively and we look for how to measure the right metrics and we gauge our productivity. And these are not bad things. They can help us be better stewards of our resources. But we have to remember that the business of the church is not business. The business of the church is the worship of God. We are holy. We're peculiar. Okay, thirdly, the church is Catholic. Now, this is always confusing to some of you diehard Protestants. Why do we say Catholic, Ed? I know we're not Catholic. I've met Diane, and I know you have kids, so clearly you're not a priest. Well, the word Catholic in Latin means universal. Sometimes we say universal when we recite the creed here at Gateway. By the way, for those of you who grew up Catholic, even when the creed was recited in your church, that's what it really meant. The church is universal. Listen to... Uh, Paul's unity chorus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the authors of the Creed understood Paul's message here. They were concerned that the Jesus movement would splinter, was splintering actually, and, and that it would hurt its influence and its impact. They didn't want the church in Alexandria versus the church in Rome versus the church in Constantinople. They didn't want those who follow Arius versus those who follow Athanasius. They wanted a Catholic church of one hope, one body, one Lord, one faith, one God. This was Jesus's hope and his prayer, as you remember, and the hope and prayer of the apostles. One way to think about this is to imagine the idea of the unity that we just talked about, person to person, writ large and over the whole planet. In other words, it was central to Jesus' heart 
that, that we be one with one another, that you and I be unified along with that. It follows that we should be unified on a large scale as well. All of us who call ourselves Christians should be united. In fact, we should be agents of unity. Let me give you a specific illustration of this kind of thinking, if I can. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul tells Timothy, hey, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? In other words, Christ followers, universally, everywhere, we all have the same kind of sinful nature. We all have similar tendencies, and we all have similarly been changed by Jesus Christ. So now, the same teaching applies to all of us, because there's a unity that stretches across all of our experiences. Really, the whole idea of Scripture assumes this. We can apply all of all of Scripture to all of ourselves, to our settings, everywhere because of the Catholicity of our faith. My mother was a devoted Christ follower and an almost equally devoted Southern Baptist. I suspect if we had lived in an area without a Southern Baptist church, she might have driven 100 miles, passing several other good churches, by the way, in order to go to a Southern Baptist one. Fortunately, we lived in South Carolina in the 60s where there were more Southern Baptists than there were people. Still, you get the idea. These days, denominations have lost their devoted followership largely, but that doesn't mean we haven't invented new ways to tribalize our allegiance. This form of worship or that, this teacher or that one, this type of politics or that. But we believe in the church, one, holy, universal. Now, before we leave this topic, let me mention one other thing. We're living right now in America in the most divided culture I can ever remember. I don't think I need to elaborate. I think that's the one thing we can all agree on. Listen, the church is an agency of unity and collectivity. That's our specialty. This is who we are and what we do. And this is the moment for us to speak that into our culture. Again, this is the moment for us to speak that into our divided culture. I'm not saying we don't stand for things. We do. I'm not saying we don't speak out. We do. But we do it in ways that move us toward relationship, toward reconciliation, always. That's what we do and how we do it. And when we operate in any other way, we're not being the church. Let's do a thought exercise this morning. Think of the political issue about which you are the most aggravated and exercised. Maybe it's immigration. Maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's media bias. Maybe it's race relations. Maybe it's the environment. Now, those are important issues. They deserve our attention and our prayer. Now, let's look for a second at the creed. Remember, this is the basics of our faith. This is the plumb line. These are the roots of the tree of our life together, to use another analogy. And I want you to notice, your political issue is nowhere to be found. I want to speak honestly. Some of these political issues energize me. A couple of the things on that list often determine my vote, but even they are not worth the energy that I sometimes give them. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the final descriptor is apostolic. 
Remember, this creed was written about 250 years after the last of the original apostles had died. So what does this mean, apostolic? Well, the authors of the creed are directly reflecting Paul's teachings in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Let's, let's look at it. He says, You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which the Spirit of God lives. So Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of this whole enterprise. We are joined together in him. We are built as a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And the foundation of all of this? Well, it's the teaching of the apostles and prophets. In other words, it's the Bible. This is the foundation. The apostles and prophets. Apostolic. Now, I have to say something here to my Catholic brothers and sisters. And I'm using that term there with a capital C as in the denomination Catholic. Now, as a matter of official uh, Catholic doctrine, the Catholic Church still affirms this, the apostolic nature of the church, and always has. Concerning the leadership of the Catholic Church, the church itself's official stance is this teaching, meaning the teaching of the church, including the words of the Pope. Again, quote, this teaching is not above the word of God, but serves it, end quote. That's the official doctrinal stance. But I have to say, the Catholic Church functions very differently at times and always has. Although I have great respect for the Catholic Church, and I've, I've been positively influenced by many of her voices, I am not a Catholic, obviously, and this gets at one of the main reasons why. The Church, the Catholic Church, sometimes puts itself above the Bible, though doctrinally it says that it does not. Here's what I mean. Whenever Catholicism officially embraces something theologically or, or makes something a matter of regular practice that is outside of the Bible, it seems to me that it places itself above the Bible. Let me give some examples. The, the Immaculate Conception, Purgatory, the infallibility of the Pope. These would be examples. These are not only absent from the Bible. I honestly believe I can make a compelling case that they are contradictory to the Bible in some ways. This was the primary mover in Martin Luther's desire to reform the church. The church of the 16th century began to endorse practices that were contradictory to Scripture. For example, priests traveled throughout Europe of the day and sold indulgences to people as a way of raising funds for the church. Now, the whole idea of indulgences was shaky biblically. The thought is that some action should be performed, some indulgence that would alleviate our guilt from sin. On its face, this seems weird since the only action prescribed by the apostles was performed by Jesus on our behalf. Still, let's allow that there might be some psychological benefit to this, this practice of indulgence, but then to encourage the selling of these indulgences. In other words, the individual performs not some act of contrition and repentance, but, but they give a certain amount of money to the church and this earns them indulgence and freedom from guilt. Well, this is in effect a bribe of heaven. And Luther aimed his criticism at this practice initially. Eventually, he would aim his criticism at the entire structure that, that encouraged and allowed for the wide usage of this kind of a practice. He would call the church to return to Scripture alone as the basis and foundation of its teaching. The church excommunicated him. 
And then protests began to emerge across all of Europe inspired by Luther's teaching. And it wasn't long before these protests, protestants, the people protesting began to identify themselves as Protestants. Look, having made this impassioned cry for unity and Catholicity today, I'm not now trying to turn my back on that and, and trying to throw the Catholic denomination under the bus. Do Christians sometimes disagree on important things? Yes. Do Christians sometimes disagree on biblical interpretations using the same words and earnestly believing their disparate positions? Yes. Ed, does that drive you crazy? Yes. Do you wish everyone agreed with you? Yes. Then we'd all be right. <laughs> but that's, that's not the way of things on planet Earth. And I've come to realize that God cannot make it so without obliterating us. As long as we are what we are, sinners saved by grace, then disagreement and conflict will abound. And I've also come to realize that does not limit God. But we really do have the answer. Now, we don't have an answer to each of the questions and controversies that arise. Unfortunately, we don't have that. But we have the answer. And we are the only ones who do. That's why our job, being the church, is so vitally important, now more than ever. So let's press toward unity, even when it's hard. Let's press for and grow in holiness. Let's press toward Catholicity. And let's lean into the Bible. Let's be the church. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Hey, let me leave you with three questions this morning. And I'd love for you to dial into some conversation with the people that you're watching with today or with someone uh, later this week. Three things for us to think about. Number one, how does our current atmosphere change how we are the church. You know, we're in quarantine. In other words, or some version of it, in other words, what does it look like practically for us to be the church right now? Second question. Let me offer three different categories. We'll put these on the screen. And I want you to decide which one of these you're closest to, which one best describes you right now. A, all in using my time, talent, and treasure at Gateway, if you're connected to Gateway, if you're somewhere else, put in the name of your church. Investing in relationships, offering myself to others, connecting more and more deeply, giving of my money and my skills as needed. B, really enjoying my time connecting to Gateway, getting a lot out of what I'm learning, getting to know a few people, giving what I can. C, attend regularly and enjoy the church when I go, and I get a lot out of it. Obviously, I'm listing only the positive ones because I'm, I suspect that if your answer is trending toward negative, you might not be here. So which one is the closest to where you're at? And why are you there? And maybe most importantly, where does God want you? Third, what will you do this fall to engage with the church, you and your family? As we move back together, as we try to re-engage in being the church, what, what will you do to engage? Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I, I, you know, I've prayed that this contemplation of the church would uh, encourage us more and more to be the church. Let's end our time in prayer together. Father, thanks so much for calling us together. That's what we believe. We don't believe we're here by accident. 
We believe you have appointed us. You have called us to this place. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that each of us would take up our place. Uh, Lord, no guilt for, you know, I know that you haven't called all of us to spend all of our time at Gateway. That would be pointless. That's a, little, that's a closed circle. You need us investing in different ways at different places, but you need all of us investing in relationships, knowing others and being known, loving others and being loved, serving others and being served. So I pray that you would show us the where and the who and um, that we jump in. Thanks so much for your immense investment in us. We bring ourselves to you and ask that you make of our lives what you've designed them to be. We pray all this in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.